everybody. Welcome to episode 31 of Tunes Mate. I'm Mark. And I'm Ray. And Ray, today I was fascinated. I couldn't believe that 20 years ago, the U2 album, All That You Can't Leave Behind, was released. And I was like, wow, that was 20 years ago? You know how you always do the, hey, that was five years ago? Mm-hmm. I started thinking about this. And this album actually is really special to me, not only because I think I basically love every single track on it, and I think it was kind of another rebirth of them. I think they always seem to do this, where there's a little, maybe there's an album that doesn't hit as much, and then they come back really big. I felt like this was it for you too, in my opinion. But interestingly enough, at the time, I was taking improv lessons, and it was actually at Second City had a location down in Cleveland. And this night, I knew U2 was performing. So do I go to the class or do I go to the U2 concert? Well, the U2 concert, because I waited too long, was sold out. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to go down to the arena and see if I can go to the will call window because it's only one seat. I'll see if I can get a ticket. So I go up to the window and the guy's like, no, nah, man, totally sold out. So then I went up again and I said, hey, you know... I hear you two just about to come on any tickets. He's like, no man, nothing I can do. So I sat off to the side, you know, where off where the will call window is. And I just had my head down and I'm just sitting there. And all of a sudden I hear Bono go on. And I think they were starting maybe with elevation. I think that felt like a song that would do. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, well, maybe I can listen to the concert. And this cop comes along. He's like, Hey, Hey, you know, concerts going, you got to get moving. Right. And I was about to stand up. Somebody, I don't know who, it was like a U2 tour manager walks by and says, why are you down? And I said, well, I wanted to get into the concert, but I had tickets. And they're like, you know what? How many tickets do you need? I said, one. They gave me an all access band, just snapped it on my wrist. Wow. Next thing you know, I'm walking through the security guards, you know, with the flashlights on. I walked up. I think they had, it was like a heart that was the stage how you know it's kind of walkout stage they had for that tour i walked to the tip of the heart just walked straight up and next thing you know i'm slapping bono's hand you know i'm high-fiving him (laughs) and i just sat right in the front row for the entire concert and you know i'm i'm watching you know bono talking to edge and all the movements that are happening up there they did it uh, i think it was like a double encore they came back out again Because we love you, Cleveland. And I was just like, well, I could have went to an improv class or I kind of got into the U2 concert. And it was amazing. I mean, I think they played almost every single song. I didn't look up the playlist. I'm pretty sure they almost played every song off this album. And I just remember I liked every song. And there's so many songs in this album. I'm like, that could have been a single, but they didn't release that song. Yeah, all that you left behind is pretty significant. You mentioned the idea that you two, you know, they'll put out an album and then they have a kind of a comeback. And honestly, though, the only time that that really significantly happened in their history, all that you can't leave behind was the comeback album. And what happened was, you know, you two builds up a following in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s is their peak. They got the Joshua Tree comes out. That's the one that catapults them to mega star status rattle and hum comes out after that and then octung baby comes out in 91 and routinely you'll see that octung baby listed as 
among the greatest albums of all time. There are lots of folks who love that album, who identify significantly with that album. Of course, the Joshua Tree is like that too. And personally, that's the one for me. But but then after Octum Baby, uh, Zeropa came out, you know, kind of middling. And Pop in 1997 was the album that really kind of was the valley for you too. A lot of folks listened to that album. I remember getting it and Discotech was the one hit off of that. And lots of folks just, oh my God, what is this? You know, you two finally went wrong kind of thing. I, you know, I remember even at the time feeling that way myself. In, in hindsight, I actually appreciate the album more now, almost 25 years later. So Pop came out in 97 and then three years later, they released All That You Can't Leave Behind. And again, it's October, October 30th of 2000. And I was trying today, I, I couldn't find it to find the quote. But I remember at the time, so I'm paraphrasing here, but I remember at the time Bono saying we're something, and again, I'm paraphrasing, we're auditioning to be the greatest rock band in the world again. And again, I I probably don't have that exactly right, but there was this line and it was the idea that this is you two reestablishing themselves as the great band that had really sort of taken over in the 80s and 90s and had become this this phenomenal sensation in popular music and they you know they worked with daniel lenoy and brian eno on this album and you're right you listen to this album you know you got beautiful day is is the biggest Mm -hmm. uh hit of the thing i mean it's the one that has the most staying power that you know gets used and stuff but walk on elevation stuck in a moment you can't get out of and then you just go on down the stuff that the ones that weren't hits Kite in a little while, wild honey, peace on earth. When I look at the world, New York, Grace, right on down the line. This did do kind of what Bono was suggesting and reestablish themselves. The critical reviews were tremendous. The the sales were tremendous. And you're right in saying that this was the comeback album. And, you know, this is a comeback in a way. I'm partial. You know I'm partial. U2 is my favorite band. And I've, I've gotten into discussions with folks over the years about their favorite band, my favorite band, and not necessarily debates, more of like my friend Mike, you know, R.E.M. is his favorite band. We talk about neither one of us dislikes the other one. So I like R.E.M. He likes you too. But, you know, we talk about, so we weren't really debating, but we talk about why R.E.M. appealed to him, why you two appealed to me. And it was all very much we understood each other. And the same thing with other bands, uh, whether, you know, Van Halen, like, you know, that's your favorite band or The Cure, you know, go on down the line, right? Anything even newer or whatever. But U2, I think, again, I'm partial here, but U2 has a claim to be in the discussion. I don't know that they are the greatest rock band of all time, but they certainly merit discussion for that top 10 list. And so this was, hey, we know that we've kind of had a dip here. And as Bono kind of said, well, did say, we're, you know, this is our addition to get back into your graces, so to speak. Yeah. And my question is, so you said it was pop and then I believe they had the Pop Mart tour Yep, that was right before this. And I also remember that that was, I guess they put more money into that tour than anything they did before. So the album was not received well, and then they lost a lot of money on the tour. So my question is, was it the fact that it was so poor that that you think that inspired them to go back and say, Hey, we're going to hit the reset button and we need to come out of the gates. Or did they follow their typical creative process and just went, okay, we need to go back to our roots and 
and just get creative. So I don't know the full story, but I know that if you look at critical reviews, there's that sense of it, that this was you two going back to where they came from. And even the title, All That You Can't Leave Behind, suggests that sort of reflect the idea that we're looking back and you can't leave it behind. We've still got pop with us. We've still got what's going on over the last decade with us. You can't leave it behind. But the idea that we're going back to that. And if you look, you know, one of the things is that they were working with Flood, with Howie B, with with different folk for pop. And all that you leave behind, they're working again with Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoy. That's who they worked with for the Joshua Tree. And the Joshua Tree is, you know, it's now... 33 years old, 87, it was released. And I mean, that, you know, to many people, what, a, a couple of years ago, they did, well, three years ago, they did the 30th anniversary. They did a retour of the Joshua Tree tour. It showed the significance of that. And folks identify with the Joshua Tree and U2 in large part because it was their most successful album in terms of like pop success, right? Their two number one hits are off of that album. Really, I mean, they had had hits before that. They had had success before that. This is the one that launched them to the stratosphere. And the tour was significant. You know, you look at the um, Where the Streets Have No Name video, where they're, you know, they're trying to have a concert in L.A. on top of a, a building. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was footage of Bono, Brace painting stuff. I'm pretty sure it was in San Francisco. And you had to go back and clean it off. And it, just the tour itself was a phenomenon. So then 30 years later, doing the, the 30th anniversary tour was trying to relive that experience. And this personally, this goes back for me because it was the Joshua Tree. And it was actually really a year after the Joshua Tree came out. I remember it, night, summer of 1987 was when I really got into popular music. I mean, you know, I knew pop songs before then, but that was the summer that I just, it grabbed me. And um, I started following charts and I started listening to Rick D's Weekly Top 40 and then Casey Kasem, American Top 40, you know, started buying a lot more pop music, watching Dial MTV every day, you know, watching MTV a lot. You know, that started for me the summer 87, which is when U2 was having this success with the Joshua Tree. And and I still haven't found what I'm looking for it was one of the number one hits that was that was out during that time. But I remember at the time, you know, I thought, well, U2 is OK, but I didn't really grab them. And the following summer, in, in the summer 1988, I joined Columbia Music Club or whatever, right? And, you, you know, you, back then cassettes, right? Ten cassettes for a penny and then you got to buy so many, right? And on a whim, I got the Joshua Tree as one of my ten for a penny. And I put it in after I got it. I, I remember this moment sitting in my bedroom, putting this tape in and suddenly it got me. I mean, I was hooked. And then Rattle and Hum came out later that year. And so, you know, in my experience is, I mean, maybe a year later than a lot of folks experience, but the Joshua Tree is the one. But of course, you know, there's plenty of older fans. And so when we talk about the significance of U2, a lot of it really kind of goes back to that. And then we go back to uh, All That You Can't Leave Behind is really sort of, it at least felt like recapturing what they had in the late 80s, early 90s, and trying to go back to that. And again, the statement from Bono really sort of reflected the idea that that's what they were trying to do with this, that they recognized that pop was not received well, that folks weren't really happy with the direction they were going. And they were like, all right, fine. You know, we're going to try to get this back. So my question to you is similar to the Van Halen discussion. So your introduction to you two via cassette Joshua Tree. Well, I wouldn't say introduction to you two. I remember pride in the name of love from before that. Okay. You know, I knew peripherally. Yeah, you know. 
other songs. But the thing that got me hooked was again a year after it was after mm-hmm. it was put out was getting the Joshua Tree and putting it in and and then just listening to it. And I and the first time through that the songs that I knew and I I mean I knew the hit I knew with or without you I knew still haven't found what I'm looking for I knew where the streets have no name obviously I knew the videos I had heard the songs plenty of times. Right. They had never grabbed me the way they did when I listened to that album. And it, it's, it's again, like you talk about with all that you can't leave behind. I can listen to that album. I can listen to Mothers of the Disappeared. I can live, listen to, you know, the other tracks on that album. Uh, I Tripped Through Your Wires, you know, A Red Hill t- a Mining Town. I can listen to the whole album. There's not a down moment for me in that whole album. Yeah, I feel the same with you 2 was definitely getting that album, The Joshua Tree. And then, you know, I've heard some of their songs whether it was on the radio or, you know, was around there, but it wasn't until that album that I got hooked. And then I went back just like Van Halen went back and found out everything else that was before that. Mm-hmm. And there, you had mentioned earlier in our pre-discussion about you too also has a 40th anniversary of an album. And I wonder when did you stumble across that album? Yeah, that's a really good question. Good point. So their very first, their debut studio album was Boy, which was released on October 20th of 1980. So while we're looking at 20 years since All That You Can't Leave Behind, we're looking at 40 years since basically the beginning of U2 as a pop music sensation. I mean, they had been around for four years before that. They started in 1976, but 1980, October 1980 is when they released their first studio album. It was actually after listening to The Joshua Tree. <laughs> I don't remember because, I mean, it's been 32 years ago, but I remember that by the time Rattle and Hum came out that fall, the fall of 88, I had all their old out all their old cassettes already. I think what I what happened was I had those the the record club I had to buy so many more after getting my 10 for a penny or whatever. Yeah. And I think I went through and I just bought their old catalog. They were all in there and I bought Boy and I bought October and I just went, you know, I went down and bought them all and then I just started listening to them and I I remember even having a conversation with somebody else I knew in high school. So I think a year older than me on like the band bus and and you know she was wearing a U2 shirt or something and and I was like yeah U2 and she's like yeah I've got everything except Rattle and Hum you know and I think I had just gotten Rattle and Hum you know and it was that idea that I was introduced to Boy shortly after I fell in love with uh, Joshua Tree and it was again it was along with everything else Unforgettable Fire you know October War Boy the whole you know the whole lineup there and it was just I just remember going back to the beginning and I'd listened to every I think I listened to them in order at one point and I just was wow I love this stuff and of course the big hit that people know is really one of their signature songs from boy is i will follow and even that yeah i mean it kicks off the whole the whole album and yeah and it's from there it's their first real hit and so you know it's and it's got the feel of you too i mean you know if you run away run away i will run away run away i will fight right i mean it's just Mm-hmm. It's got the feel, the energy, the yeah. I mean, it's got all the elements. You know, yeah. the guitar, the bass line, the drumming, and then the lyrics, and then you know Bono's you know charisma coming yep. through. Yep, lyrically. And so, and you know, there, there are plenty of fans out there that have been with U two since the early eighties. But it's yeah, we're at the fortieth anniversary, really, of U two as as a pop music entity and 20 years since they reestablished themselves as the the stratosphere artists that came along with the late 80s with the joshua tree and it's just as a fan of you two it's amazing it's it's really i really i don't know that i would say i'm on a personal note they're my favorite i don't know that i would say they're the greatest rock band ever i think funny i was just having a conversation with my son yesterday because he saw something about a volkswagen beetle 
And he said, oh, is that from England? Because he knows a song about England that mentions the Beatles. And I said, no, that's from Germany. And so I started to explain to him who the Beatles were. And I walked through Paul and John and George and Ringo and, you know, all this stuff. And um, and I was saying, you know, they may very well be the greatest uh, band in history. Although, if I'm really thinking about it, I mean, you know, there's, there's a real case there. I mean, in terms of pop music phenomenon, the Beatles are the greatest in history. I don't think there's a way to question that in terms of success. But if you add in the sound and the longevity and everything, I, I think the Rolling Stones have a real case, man. You know, but if you start talking top 10, right, you got the Beatles, you got the Stones, you, you know, and you start saying, okay, now who else goes in that conversation? I think U2 belongs in that top 10 somewhere. I love this conversation because this goes down to the definition of what a rock band is because, mm -hmm. you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has been teetering on this topic. A lot of people criticize the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they're like, wait a minute, Mariah Carey isn't a rock artist. You know, Whitney Houston. They're not a rock artist. And I start thinking about that definition of rock. I agree with you. I feel like if you look, because we always reference Billboard, and if you're looking at Billboard and the start of rock and roll and all of the artists that we feature on Tunes Mate, from Elvis to the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to all these you know chart toppers, we always look at where they've come from and how they fit into how they've influenced others. And I think we went down this path a couple times. So I wonder about that too, because I always think about what actually does define this. And I know it's all over the place, mm -hmm. but when you start talking about rock bands and I start going off into these other, you know, thresholds of, Oh, well, you know, Mariah Carey just beat Elvis's record <laughs> for number ones. And right. It's a, an interesting conversation and an uninteresting conversation at the same time to me. It's, you know, the idea is that rock and roll, if you go back to, you know, the establishment of rock and roll and, and that tends to get dated back to Bale Haley and the Comets in 1955, right. Rock Around the Clock. Well, you know, yeah, they were a band. Yeah, they were a rock band, but, you know, they're poppy. They're, it's pop. Right, and, right. And and if you look at the charting hits from the late fifties, early sixties, from when rock and roll is being born, right up through even sixty three, when the Beatlemania hits, it's pop. And and rock and roll, as it was defined then, gets defined differently because of the development of really kind of hard rock and band rock of the seventy late sixties, seventies, eighties. And yes. so to me, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is fine with adding all of, all of this stuff that some folks might say is not rock because to me rock and roll is really pop music of the 20th century to the, through to today and so you know it's got its basis in the blues it's got its background in gospel it's got its background in country western it's you know the all of those things came together to produce and jazz, you know, et cetera. You, all this stuff came together to produce rock and roll. And so, you know, you mentioned somebody like Mariah Carey or Whitney Houston. And Whitney Houston is a good example of this. Her trajectory is informed by Motown. It's informed by gospel music. I mean, she comes right out of a gospel tradition. And, you know, her what godmother is Dionne Warwick. And, you know, again, sort of this R&B gospel tradition, yet an element of rock in there. And, and then, you know, that one of the big controversies becomes like rap music, right? Well, but rap music begins with rock because it's DJs playing records, mm -hmm. talking over the records. And so 
And it just, it's a new stylization of that. At the same time, the idea of a rock band that I'm talking about when I talk about this top 10, that, that I am making a distinction between, say, a rock band and a pop group, like, say, New Kids on the Block or something. You know, they're not a rock band. This isn't three, four or five people coming together and and having full instrumentation there in the way that bands from the Bangles to U2 to Rolling Stones, et cetera, on down the who, yeah. you know, right on down the line. And it's funny because it was I saw about a year ago, I saw a listing from Billboard of the the top rock singles of the decade or the year or something like that, or you know, the, the past couple of years. And like the top five was dominated by Panic at the Disco and Imagine Dragons. And it's weird because Imagine Dragons a little more, but it's certainly Panic at the Disco. I mean, they're a band. They don't feel rock in the way that even like Nickelback feels. So yeah. that that's kind of, it's weird because then what gets in the contemporary environment where you can look at the Hot 100 right now and, you know, if somebody's like a hardcore, this is what rock is. They're not going to find an, an, a single song on there that's rock. Yeah, no, nope. really. Mean, maybe, maybe right now because Fleetwood Mac is back with Dreams, you know, and it's maybe that one's an exception because you know, but that's an anomaly. Um, flashback. Yeah, it became a hit because it became a viral sensation. It's a, a flash in the pan anomaly that people relive in that. But that idea of the rock band, mm-hmm. and again, U two is quintessential to that. It, this is four people. You got your, like you said, the singer, the bassist, the guitarist, and the drummer. They all contribute to the to the music. You know, you can listen to U2's music, and you know, Larry's bringing something, and Bono's bringing something, and the Edge is bringing something, and Adam's bringing something, and it all comes together. Yeah, and I was gonna say, I there was a comment from John Bermuda Schwartz, the drummer, to Weird Al in his interview, and I, I'll never forget this. He said, out of all the bands that have been together, that the original lineup. There's not too many bands that actually have the same original lineup today. And right. he was saying, well, Weird Al does. You too <laughs> does. And I was like, what about Aerosmith? Well, not actually, because they, <laughs> they broke up for a while and they come back. Right. So if you think about that, I mean, that is definitely a feat with you too. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought about it, but you're right. I mean, they've really been together since the late 70s. So we're, we're talking about 40 plus years of the same unit. And they, you know, there have been a couple of side projects. Larry and Adam did the Mission Impossible theme. Bono and the Edge worked on the Spider-Man musical and stuff. You know, there have been some side projects, but but they've stuck together. I think that, so back when I got into U2 in high school in the late 80s, I started reading about U2 a lot. And it's interesting because when we did our Van Halen podcast, I, I gave the example of how I was talking to the one a dental assistant one time and she said, Van Halen is music for like energy music when you want to party and U2 is like spiritual music. And to the band, there is a spiritual element to this. In the 80s, the late 70s into the 80s, they have a very conscious spiritual side to them. They identify, I mean, in, in a sense, I mean, Christian rock could actually claim U2. You know, and, and they have songs like Yahweh and stuff that are more explicit about that. Uh, Gloria, because you got Gloria in, Ex- in Excelsis Deo, right? So, you know, drawing on specific religious imagery, but they are also Christian. And I mean, I'm not, but they're, they're secular in a way, but they also have this element that, you know, you, one wonders if it's this faith in the unit that they have that helps keep them together over the time. Because there have been times, I, if I remember right, 
there was a time at one point where Adam was seriously considering leaving. Heard that about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was ultimately sort of the, the cohesiveness, the, the faith in the band, basically. I mean, that's at least one version of it is that they feel a, and what do you want to call it, a brotherhood or, you know, a, a connection there. And it, it keeps them together. It's a spiritual experience. You mentioned, you know, you're the, you started us off with your experience with the U2 concert. And I actually, for years, had never seen U2 in concert. You know, they're my favorite band from like 1988. And it was finally in 2009 that I got to see them in concert. So I went more than 20 years. I mean, I saw all kinds of other concerts. I'd never seen U2 in concert, just never had worked out for that. And they were on their, their 360 tour. Got tickets to see them at Soldier Field in Chicago. My wife and I went to it and it was phenomenal. And so then the next, it was going to be the next summer, but then Bono had back surgery. And so in the summer of 2011, they were, they had resumed their 360 tour because they had had to postpone a bunch of dates uh, because of Bono's back. In the summer of 2011, my dad and I went to Spartan Stadium in East Lansing, Michigan, and we saw U2 in concert. I remember walking out of the concert. My dad had never been to a big concert like that. I mean, you know, he was over, he was, you know, 60 years old at the time and he had never been to a stadium concert. And he was like, yeah, I don't know that I ever want to go because I think they ruined everything else for me. The concert experience with U2 was so good. He was like, okay, well, I went to one and it was the best. And I remember talking to other people and they are the athletic director at, at Bowling Green State University. I found out later that he was actually at that concert in East Lansing too. And, and we were talking about it. And he said, it's it's like a spiritual experience, that, that experience of being at a U2 concert. There's a feel there that they're able to capture live. And that goes right back to the Joshua Tree. That was part of what made the Joshua Tree and made them the into the, the stratosphere that they got to in 87 because the tour was an experience. And then that all comes back with all the can't leave behind. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I was thinking about this. So you two, believe it or not, was my second concert that I ever saw. And it was oh, yeah. because I, my friend Mike invited me, he had an extra ticket. So I went to see the Joshua Tree tour at Cleveland oh, wow. Municipal Stadium. And I'll never forget because I saw Weird Al was my first concert. So, you know, uh -huh. what's my second concert? I go to U2. And they started out with, I believe the streets have no name. Makes sense. And that keyboard was just, they, they had it on sustain for over a minute and a half. You know, that opening yep. <laughs> keyboard riff. And it was just sending chills throughout the entire stadium. I mean, the stadium was packed. I think it held like 90,000 people or something. Yep. And they opened up with that riff and the place just went crazy. I'm like, okay, I think I can like this band. This is much different than Weird Al. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, Municipal Stadium. I mean, that was, that is, it was a huge play. It was held like 80,000, 90,000 people. And that's exactly what it was like at, at Spartan Stadium. It was uh, 70 some thousand people there. And I don't remember if they... I can't remember if they started with that or not. I don't remember what they started with, but, but yeah, that keyboard line. And that was, that's the Brian Eno uh, influence there. It was a great concert. And the one thing you made me think about when you were talking about U2 and their longevity is I think it is interesting that, so we talked about U2, Weird Al, Michael Jackson, Madonna, and Kenny G have had, a song in the top 40 of the Billboard Hot 100 over the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. I thought that was pretty interesting that there is company there. Mm. 
between all those music artists. Just <laughs> wow, blew my mind there for a second. <laughs> yeah. Well, think about how eclectic of a group that is. You've got a lot of different stuff in there. Yeah. I think pretty much Weird Al's covered all of them. Well, you know, and then Kenny G, you know. Unbelievable. Wow. Well, that's the staying power of you too. And that when I go back to that, the greatest bands of all time, one of the things is that they've had staying power. I mean, you know, in a way that if you think about 80s bands, you know, that have managed to maintain the success, you know, Bon Jovi's been able to do it. Van Halen has been able to to somewhat do it, you know, and U2 has, it, I mean, you know, they're still, I mean, young people know who U2 is. And that's another thing that I think is significant. I remember when I was a, in college, was this, this was freshman year of college. I was in the dorm and I lived across from a couple guys who were into like alternative music. And they, at one point, got into this war, basically, with some guys down around the hall. Somebody wrote their board on their door, like their dorm room door, like something about U2 mushroom music. And this would have been like, you know, fall of 1990 or spring of 91. It's reminiscent of another example when I was in high school and, you know, my friends and I were into Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and you know, my one friend looks at me and goes, yeah, you know, we'd love to have a concert around here, you know, whatever. And I'm in small town, Ohio. Right. And he goes, looks at me and goes, oh, but you'd probably get you too. It was this idea that even as they had this great success, there was a certain image of them as sort of this alternative band you know the mushroom music that they're not they're not the band that brings all the demographics together but by the time you get to all that you can't leave behind they're now stadium rock and they are a band that tons of people come together for tons of different reasons and so that's another part of their legacy yeah and being up front seeing them perform that close and just seeing the edge play You know, a lot of people kind of put, they don't put Edge in the category of guitar virtuoso, but watching him, Mm -hmm. I just, he was standing there. And if you're far away, you really can't see it too well. But when you're up close, the amount of effects that he has at his, his command, there's a rack by like three or four racks behind him. And I saw him going over there fiddling with it like all night long. But if you're far away, you just kind of see him in front, you know, playing and he's stepping around, but you don't really see him go for some reason. I don't know what it is. Maybe you're focusing on Bono or something, but I kept watching him and I was just amazed basically of everyone in the band. But for him, it was like the edge and Alex Lifeson from rush. I feel Mm -hmm. like they're most underrated guitar players that are out there. There's probably a list. We need to start a list. They're definitely on that list. You know, well, and one of the things, it's an it's a really interesting point. And you'll see these lists and some lists will have the edge like right in the top 10. And then other lists will completely forget about them. And part of it is because a lot of times virtuoso guitar player, great guitar player, right? We think Eddie Van Halen, Eric Clapton, you know, go on down the list, Jimi Hendrix. In a lot of ways, it's because of their sort of lead guitarist solo ability. Mm-hmm. Edge is the guitarist of U2. He is a lead guitarist, but he plays lead guitar in a way that is kind of built on a rhythm guitar basis. So it's, you know, if you got the band with the lead guitar and rhythm guitar, the rhythm guitar is just, play, you know, is, is essentially playing the chords to help keep the music together, you know, along with the bass line. You know, yeah, that intricacies that he's doing there, the multiple sounds, it's like making rhythm guitar into lead guitar. 
And so it doesn't strike as virtuoso in the same way that Eddie Van Halen, Eric Clapton, et cetera, does. And I think when you're just to build on that point, I wonder you talked about the, you know, mushroom music or whatever that was. I feel like that's why the Ramones were popular. They didn't have any solos. It was, you know, one, two, three, four, hit it. You know? right. And U2 is similar to that, where they've got that feel of punk a little bit, but then the sensibility of rock and soul that's kind of meshed in there. And I wonder, that's where the opposite of Van Halen is. I mean, Van Halen's always about building up to that three-minute guitar solo or whatever it is. Well, I mean, there are solo parts. Probably my favorite U2 song of all time is All I Want Is You. And there's a whole part, you know, mm-hmm. the whole end of the song is is this basically a, a spotlighting of the edge. But you're, I think you're right in the sense that there is a, it's not like, like I think your, your comparison of Van Halen is good there, that there's a buildup in Van Halen songs to the, okay, now we've got Eddie's solo part. And in U2, there may be parts that are a solo for for Larry on the drums. Think of like Bullet the Blue Sky or something. There are parts that are solo for the edge. Adam, not quite as much, uh, but certainly there are parts where the bass is prominent. I guess, yeah, no, there are solo parts for the bass too sometimes. And so I think you're onto something there. But I think your mention of the Ramones and punk rock is instructive here. The U2 began in the punk rock tradition. They were a punk band out of Ireland originally, or at least from punk roots in Ireland. These were guys who played with those types of bands in the mid and late 70s, and then they came together as U2. And so uh, U2's roots are very much situated there. But as you mentioned, you know, there's that soul and other stuff that's in. They really then, um, and they're early stuff. If you go back to Boy, if you go back to, you know, stuff. And I, I always, the, the one song that always sticks with me from among their early stuff was a song called I Threw a Brick Through a Window. You know, the idea of just, it's even in the name, mm-hmm. right? And so... U2 comes out of this punk tradition, but they really, and I Threw a Brick Through a Window is from the October album, their second album. They really then expanded upon that. And you can see the seeds of it in like Unforgettable Fire with like Pride in the Name of Love because they become political in a way. And then, you know, Pride in the Name of Love is about Martin Luther King. And you can see, okay, there's a trajectory starting here where they're interested in American black music and Uh, you know, civil rights, you know, this is civil rights movement, but it it sort of sets up the trajectory that, I mean, in hindsight, it's easy to see where they then moved to, uh, by rattle and hum to, we're going to strip down to, you know, sort of bare basics for a lot of songs. And we're going to hit back to a gospel tradition and a rhythm and blues tradition. And then all of that then becomes part of their essential sound. So I think you you really kind of hit it on that they're kind of this originally punk influenced band that then grew into so much more. In that way, one of the things that I think is similar to one of the bands that I would put in that discussion of the top 10 is The Who. And I listen to The Who's Greatest Hits album a lot. And I think if you want like a quick trip of rock music from the mid 60s to the early 80s, listen to The Who's Greatest Hits because the early stuff is it's very much the British invasion but by the time you get to the late 60s and you get to I Can See for Miles, it's psychedelia rock. And then into the 70s, their rock opera and the late 70s, early 80s, there's the synthesized stuff. And then you get to like Eminent Front, which is their, you know, their last hit. And, you know, that's got this funk 80s based in the 70s, but true to the 80s funk feel to it. It's like the history of, of rock from 65 to 85 is right there. And and so U2 in some ways, I don't know if it's quite the same, but U2 is in some ways of the development of punk 
into everything else from, you know, 1978 or so right on through to, well, today, but certainly until 2000. Cool. So you too, it's been fun catching up, talking about it. Anything else you wanted to add about you two that we forgot about in this interview, Ray? No, I think you you summed it up there. I you know again, I'm I'm partial. They're my favorite band, but there's some good reasons why they are. And and I think that looking at you know 20 years ago and 40 years ago, this is a a good moment to just reflect back on what they mean. Yeah, 20, 40, it's amazing. We'll continue to be inspired listening to you two. I know that is always part of what we're posting on Tunes Mate and trying to continue to keep you inspired moving forward. And don't forget, if you're out there, subscribe to us. Give us some likes on our podcast. Follow our blog and help us keep pushing things forward with music. That's what we like to do. So, once again, I'm Mark. And I'm Rick. And we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.